Corbynism The Postmortem is kindly sponsored by Lath & Co Wealth Advisors, recently voted in the top 2% of financial advisors in the UK. If the COVID pandemic has affected your finances, why not reach out to Lath & Co today, who are offering a totally free introductory video call to discuss financial planning. Specialising in retirement, savings, investments, insurance and mortgages. So head on over to lathandco.co.uk today and book your free video call now. Lath & Co. Simple and attainable financial planning for everyone. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. On October 29th, 2020, the Equalities and Human Rights Commission's report into Labour Party anti-Semitism was released. The conclusions were damning. The Labour Party, and Jeremy Corbyn's office in particular, were found guilty of unlawful discrimination against Jewish people. While such a verdict will not have surprised any listeners of this show, the moral stain of Corbyn's leadership of the party throughout this period will never fully be washed away. There are no apologies or public statements strong enough to repair that level of damage. But there was no apology from Jeremy Corbyn following this verdict. Again, little surprise from a man who had always denied responsibility for the problem, even past the point that some of his own aides had started briefing journalists about his blind spot towards anti-Jewish racism. Instead, Corbyn inflamed tensions further by doubling down, repeating his view that the scale of unlawful discrimination that he had been found guilty of was exaggerated by factional opponents, while explicitly refusing to accept all the findings of the statutory investigation. Following this, Labour Party leader Sir Keir Starmer and Party General Secretary David Evans responded by suspending Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party membership and withdrawing the whip for bringing the party into disrepute pending further investigation. What should have been a moment of unconditional apology to those harmed by his actions was instead turned into a media circus about one man. But of course, because it always was about this one man, this could only ever have ended this way. While the EHRC report may not be the final chapter of the political career of the current independent MP for Islington North, it is absolutely the final chapter of the political movement that became known as Corbynism. Hello, and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katterji. I am very pleased this limited series has managed to last 13 episodes. If you've enjoyed joining us on this journey, please do consider subscribing at my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash or donating to my PayPal over at paypal.me forward slash Your kind support helps this and my other future journalistic projects going forward. This whole show has been a 100% solo project, and it's been a privilege to have you all along for the duration. So without further ado, joining us on this very special edition of the podcast to discuss the EHRC report, Corbyn's suspension, and where the Labour Party goes from here, we are privileged to be joined by some old friends of the show, who I'm sure need no further introduction. So please welcome Jonathan Friedland, Adam Wagner, Ruth Smith and Stephen Bush back to the show for one final time. Hello guys. Hi there. 
Hello. So, Adam W., you were on our first ever show, Labour's Institutional Anti-Semitism Crisis. Um, we were talking a lot pre-EHRC, trying to sum up, you know, the story of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party under the Corbyn era. Um, what's changed since then? And uh, can you give me your sort of thoughts, you know, a, a brief pricey on on the report itself that came out? Thanks, Oz, and thanks for having me back on. Um, yeah, I mean, the two big changes since then have been the election of Keir Starmer um, on, to, to Labour leader, and, and obviously the Equality and Human Rights Commission report into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which um, we spoke about to an extent. I, I couldn't speak about it very much because I was acting for, I'm still acting for the, the campaign against anti-Semitism, um, one of the original complainants, um, and Adam Langelbaum, who was on the original um, episode was talking about his involvement in the Jewish labour movement um, and the Equality and Human Rights Commission report came out last week and it was I mean it was totally damning it, it confirmed more or less all of the things we were talking about in that first episode um, they found there were serious failings in leadership and inadequate process for handling anti-semitism complaints across the Labour Party and multiple failures in the systems it uses to resolve them I mean that, I was quoting there um, they said it's hard not to conclude that anti-Semitism within the Labour Party could have been tackled more effectively if the leadership had chosen to do so. Um, th they found a culture that was at odds with the Labour Party's commitment to zero tolerance of anti-Semitism. They found the complaints process was not properly resourced and those responsible for it were not trained to the necessary standard. They found a significant number of complaints relating to anti-Semitism were not investigated at all. They found political interference in the handling of anti-Semitism complaints throughout the period of investigation. They found in, in 23 out of the 70 complaints um, that they investigated. So they just looked at a small sample. There were, there were hundreds of, if not thousands of complaints over the period. They looked at 70 and they found in about a, th a third of those, just under a third, there was um, interference by the leadership office, including a complaint about Jeremy Corbyn himself. Um, and they found, they made three findings of unlawfulness. First of all, they found there was discrimination. So discrimination is treating um, a group worse because of their you know, uh, race or, or whatever it is. In this case, it's race or religion because um, Judaism is both in law. Um, they found that the, the Labour Party discriminated because it um, didn't train people adequately to handle complaints. It found that it discriminated because it had a policy of um, interfering, the leadership interfering over a period in complaints of anti-Semitism. And it found in two instances um, that the party was responsible for the harassment of Jews. That's, that's um, creating an intimidating or hostile environment um, is, is the definition of harassment. Um, and they found in, I think, um, a, a, about eight, 18 other incidents of sort of borderline cases out of those 70 where there was um, potential harassment. Um, and I think the final finding, which I think was very important, was that the um, that one of the ways in which the Labour Party harassed Jews was by suggesting that complaints of anti-Semitism were fake or smears. And they talk about um, the description of a witch hunt in the Labour Party being examples of anti-Semitism. And I think that is very important going forward. From a from a personal perspective, Adam, when we when we first sort of recorded uh, the first episode, you know, you were obviously, there were lots you couldn't talk about 
and there were lots that you didn't know would happen. How much of this played out like you presumed it would? And, uh, you know, now that the case has passed, are there things that you are able to say now that you wanted to back then that you were that you were sort of thinking might happen? Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about about that that period. You know, I, I was involved probably less and for a less less time than um, than Ruth and Jonathan in particular, I think, called raised the alarm far earlier than I did. I certainly went on a personal journey because I come out of the Jewish left. I used to run a Jewish socialist um, youth movement um, and I was very interested when I heard all this was going on um, that, you know, I recognised a lot of the, the positive aspects of this young and exciting movement on the left that was, that was behind the Jeremy Corbyn leadership. Um, and, I, and I found it difficult to understand that there was this anti-Semitism um, at the core of it that was, you know, that was growing. Um, so I came, came in and, and, and went on a personal journey where it became obvious to me around 2018 um, that in, in the summer when I think uh, uh, probably to a lot of the people who were following it, um, it became clear that this was something which which wasn't just going to go away and it couldn't be resolved um, by discussion and by persuasion and that was my initial approach and I, I you know I met with um, senior people in Corbyn's office I met with Momentum I spoke to I was in touch with John Landsman I had you know it wasn't like I was just sort of coming at it from a confirmation bias approach of this is all they're all just evil these people I don't think they were um, but through the summer of 2018, I, you know, when I had those meetings and discussions, it became obvious to me that the people around the actual movement itself, the, the left of the Labour Party, the younger people especially, had a real worry that there was a, there was a rise in anti-Semitism and that the leadership, the older people, were not going to do anything about it. Um, so at that point, I, um, I, I, as it happened in the, in the early autumn, I had a phone call from Gideon Falter at Campaign Against Anti-Semitism who said we've got this complaint at the commission at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, and I think at the time nobody apart from them was was really interested in pushing it. Um, and I said I, I think it's a real I, I think there's a real chance that they will get involved, although you know it's going to take a lot of persuasion. Um, but we're going to have to spend a number of months putting it together as a formal legal submission, and, that, and that's what we did. And the, the team there worked incredibly hard. Um, and then the Jewish labour movement um, came in not long after because the commission wanted to hear from them um, and they built their own team and put in a, a huge amount of evidence and it was only I, I think we worked on it for six months before anyone really knew it was happening um, until February when the commission said actually we, we're going to trigger one of these investigations and it was only then that um, you know that the the campaign against the um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission started to, to gain pace. I mean, within a couple of weeks, just as a personal story, within a couple of weeks of, um, of, of this being announced, the commission saying they were gonna get involved, um, the, the Jewish Voice for Labour, the, who I have a lot to say on, made a complaint to my regulator, to the Bar Standards Board, a really sort of detailed complaint to try and get me struck off for, for being involved in this, wow. um, which I only found about, out about later when it, it was totally dismissed, but it was a, you know, it was a proper thing. Um, Quite I had, serious. Yeah, I mean, all sorts of things like that started to happen. Um, but I mean, to answer your question, I didn't, I genuinely didn't know what, what was going to happen in this. I had no idea. As, you know, there's, forget, leaving aside the conspiracy theories, I really did not have any sense at all of what the commission were going to do. Um, we were in touch with them regularly, but they kept their cards 
so close to their chest that you know this report could have said anything really and I wouldn't have been surprised so I was um you know I, I was what's the right word I was I felt that justice had been done because they they got to the heart of of the issue and they made the points they made and and I think you know it will have a lasting impact Stephen so obviously the EHRC investigation coming out wasn't the only big news this week because obviously something large happened immediately following it. Can you talk me through the events of what happened from the morning of the EHRC release and your personal thoughts about how we got here? So immediately after the EHRC had reported, which Adam has sort of masterfully and excellently summed up the contents of that, um, to the really, the really important thing in the contents for, for the purposes of what happened next from a Corbyn perspective, is that the report said, look, um, to treat this stuff uh, like it's a smear and not to investigate it properly first is in of itself an example of um, of anti-Semitic behaviour and of the institutional problem within the Labour Party. Um, and Keir Starmer in his response said, yeah, look, if you deny this problem, if you minimise it, if you suggest it's a factional attack, you're part of the problem and you shouldn't be in the Labour Party. And essentially, as Keir Starmer was speaking... Um, Jeremy Corbyn was also issuing his his statement, which was uh, where he basically said, "Well, I don't accept all the recommendations." Which, well, sorry, I, yeah, just, I don't agree with all the recommendations. Well, it's just like you can agree with it, you can not agree with it, mate. It's legally binding, so it's going to happen. Um, and then he he said, "Yeah, he said the scale of the problem, which was exaggerated uh, by my opponents." Um, so you know, it's a fairly open and shut contradiction of what Keir Starmer was saying. It at the very least runs contrary to the spirit of of the of what the report urges uh figures in leadership not to do. And the one of the important findings in the report uh in terms of all political parties is that it has defined um MPs and other officials as agents of the party for whom they are legally responsible. Uh so he was then suspended by the party general secretary David Evans pending uh, invent, investigation, so this is suspended under the old terms of the the process that currently exists, rather than the independent process that Labour uh, will be uh, will is being forced to adopt. Um, and this has, of course, re-triggered uh, Labour's internal war with uh, some Corbynite MPs, uh, leads of the pro-Corbyn trade union, calling for the suspension to be unpicked. So, Stephen, I, I have a question for you. Um... Do you think Jeremy Corbyn's comments brought the Labour Party into disrepute when he rejected the well, he accepted the recommendations but rejected some of the findings? Well, the yeah, you know, the, the 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 beauty and some would say the horror of Labour's uh, disrepute clause is it's essentially designed to give uh, the leader of the Labour Party, provided they have a majority on the ruling NEC, a general all-purpose clause that you can basically use to kick almost anyone out of the party. I mean, you know, a, a Labour MP who, who you know, drunkenly takes to Twitter to make fun of Manchester United this weekend, while I, I would, of course, support that personally myself, has arguably brought the Labour Party into disrepute by, you know, being rowdy and drunk on Twitter uh, late at night. Um, left, so, you know, so, you know, really, you, you could, you know, you could make, and indeed I would, but I essentially would make this argument, right? You you could argue that the very fact that Labour has come under investigation by the EHRC under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership means that you can, yeah, you have an open and shut argument that he 
a bunch of people who worked for him have brought the party into disrepute, right? You, 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 you know, you honestly can uh, sustain that perfectly fine within the both the letter and the spirit of of the 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 Labour Party rulebook. You would you would be stretching the disrepute cause far less far than it has been stretched in in the past. Um, and in terms of the specific infraction that has forced this confrontation, yeah, it's open and shut. Um, that he uh, has brought the party into disrepute because broadly, yeah, I mean, look, there is a literal press conference of Keir Starmer struggling to respond to uh, the problem uh, created by Jeremy Corbyn's statement. So, yeah, Bish Bash Bosch, he's brought the party into disrepute. Yeah, obviously, it's not my circus, it's not my monkeys, but my view still, despite the fact I do think that what Corbyn said has forced this confrontation uh on Labour is for them to make these changes that they are bound to make, that they have been bound to make by law, uh, implement an independent process, and then for the outstanding complaints, uh, particularly the historical ones that are being rebrought, to go through the independent process, uh, so then, um, you know, so then we can get that justice and finality and people don't get to go oh so in so this process is fine when it when it produces the outcomes than 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 you like right that so that's essentially uh my view of what i would ideally like to happen but yeah look it it is written in black and white and it's very clear uh that the under the rule book he has brought the party into disrepute thanks Stephen. jonathan over to you um obviously you were also on the first episode so if you want to share your thoughts on on what you think changed over the course of several months. But I'm I'm quite interested in, in your position on Corbyn's suspension, particularly in that what happened with the EHRC is so monumental to British politics. It's the first time a political party has been found guilty of the things that the EHRC did. And Corbyn's response wasn't even to come out and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that my office was unlawfully discriminating against Jewish people. He said he rejected some of the findings, didn't go into, didn't clarify that. And then he he immediately re- reverted back to, but it was all over-exaggerated by the media and my factional opponents. But surely none of that matters because you've been found guilty of unlawful discrimination. So whether your political opponents use the fact that you were guilty of unlawful discrimination against you or not, is irrelevant. Well, I was disappointed by that response. And then I'm in a way sort of disappointed with myself for expecting anything better. Um, because I now think it was kind of naive to expect anything better. And I don't mean just from him. I, I think I mean from the wider body of support he draws from. I, I now think that, and probably if I'd been forced to articulate it, I wouldn't have managed to. But it was more a feeling than an expectation that somehow, and I think a lot of people in the Jewish community had this, that the EHRC report would be a defining moment and a moment of closure for British Jews, that we would have the kind of umpire say, they were wrong and you were right. And that would be incredibly cathartic and healing. All of that, by the way, I think is true and did happen. But that I also thought part of that, and this is where the naivety comes in, would be that the those accused, as it were, would themselves be chastened by the findings, that they would say, OK, hands up, we got this wrong, and we now have to make amends. And of course, the lead for that would have been Jeremy Corbyn himself. 
And the very opposite is what happened. Of course he didn't do that uh, for the, in the way you've just said. I mean, he didn't apologise. Who expected him to do that? But he didn't. He offered the most, you know, the most microscopic unit uh, uh, of sort of measurement possible of, of of apology, which was that use of the word regret. But it was only about one aspect of it. It was about the speed of processing and it, it sort of makes you once again want to sort of, you know, sh- sh- grab somebody by the lapels and sort of shake them, saying, did you not see this was a legal statutory body giving this judgment? This wasn't just a sort of an, another person's opinion. You can't say I reject some of them or you know, this is not how it works. It's If you've been found guilty in a court, you can't say, well, I think the judge had made some good points, but I would disagree on this, that and the other. You've been convicted, you know, and I wanted this to have that standing with them. And somebody um, sent me a message saying, look, that's because you expect uh, a judgment to be, you know, a reaction rather to the judgment to be fair and rational. And a lot of these people don't operate like that. You know, they're not in that world of evidence and sort of uh, rationality. And funnily enough, you saw that with the response, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's wife immediately tweeted urging everyone to boycott the mainstream media as if it wasn't the EHRC which had found this judgment. It was the media for reporting it, you know, and this dramatically overstated as if a body, a legal body, uh, had dramatically overstated a problem for rhetorical or political reasons. To believe Jeremy Corbyn was right, you'd have to believe that there has always been a conspiracy of Blairites and Jews and Jewish organisations and the newspapers determined to do him down. Let's say you found that plausible. You've now got to believe that an independent body set up by the last Labour government, whose only task is to enforce the Equalities Act, that they too have now joined this conspiracy. You know, that these... Uh, completely non-political regulators are, are, are also in on this conspiracy to destroy the reputation of Jeremy Corbyn. So I was disappointed because it lasted just three hours. We got three hours of catharsis and vindication where, you know, from 10am when the report came out till 1pm where the news came that Jeremy Corbyn had been suspended, the discussion was about uh, what, what had actually been laid bare by the Equalities Commission, which was uh, that Labour discriminated against Jews so badly that they actually broke the law. I mean, that is an amazing finding against any political party, but especially the political party that prides itself on its anti-racism. I thought that would be the discussion in the end. And actually, I say three hours. Jeremy Corbyn put up his statement within 35 minutes. You know, we were allowed 35 minutes for, for that feeling of indication that we weren't exaggerating we hadn't been lying and smearing and disseminating or being sort of hysterical and touchy, these constant familiar tropes, rather, about Jews. 35 minutes we got of that, and then it was back to him, back to the subject of him and his uh, self-image as this pure, uh, unimpeachable anti-racist and how dare this body say that I'm anything but rather than any kind of contrition. And of course, once he did that, then his followers, outriders on the media, they took their cue from that, as they always have, and went into belittling, minimising and denial. So one thing I have to just come off the back of that is, you know, there was kind of two prongs to the Corbynite anti-Semitism scandal. One was the internal party and, and, and how that was affecting the Jewish community and the other was Corbyn's own statements and history and past none of that was included in the EHRC 
uh, document. You know, none of it was a was a was a judgment on whether Jeremy Corbyn himself was personally anti-Semitic, which many Jews in the country, you know, if you look at polling, believe that he is. Um, but even still, even still, when he was talking about the processes and and they found him guilty of unlawful discrimination, unlawful indirect discrimination, uh, his office, um, he still couldn't concede that that anything had been done wrong. It, it, for me, one of them, it was even more damning the pull clip that he did after after re releasing that statement, where he was asked by Joe Pike if he'd failed, and he said, "I don't think I have failed," and that he said that you know that that he was disappointed that the report didn't praise him more for speeding up the processes. It was it was the most cognitive dissonance I've I've seen in a political interview in a long time. You know, if you've just been found guilty of something by a court to then just completely throw that all out the window. And the, the, the narrative hasn't changed from six months ago to a year ago to, you know, every single step of the way, oh, we're, we're doing the right thing, we're getting on with the processes, you know, all this is a smear. And he, nothing has changed even after this case, which many people thought was, you know, you know ne never would ever happen. And, it, and here we are. Yeah, I think that's right. And you're quite right that the statement doubled down. Uh, the, the interview, the ITV interview, doubled down on what he'd said in the written statement. And again, you're right, it's amazing. I mean, it's coming out of court and the judge has just convicted you and you admonish the judge for not praising you. Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, I, I think one just small point I would make is about this business of his suspension. As I say, it saddened me and angered me, not the fact of it, but the timing of it, because it took away from the discussion that should have been happening, which is how did this once great party get to the point where it was discriminating against uh, a, a, an ethnic minority to the extent that it broke the law. And the voices we should have heard from, frankly, should have been from the Jewish community and the people who were on the receiving end of that, the victims of the crime, as it were, if we're going with this courtroom analogy. And instead it didn't. It was all about him. And the symbol of that to me was the, you know, the online rally that one group held, I think, on Friday night with rather... Uh, unfortunate timing as the sabbath had begun uh, they decided to say rally round the victim of this episode not the britain's jewish community but jeremy corbyn and you know uh, mrs corbyn posting a picture of all the flowers and bouquets that arrived we stand strong with you a lovely jeremy. wreath uh, yeah people said you know you could turn them into a wreath um the, the thing just a small point but i think it's worth making about this what was he suspended for? He was suspended for minimising the problem. And, uh, of course, the, the Corbynites went into righteous fury about that. What a ridiculous thing. It's not even anti-Semitism. It's just about minimising. Forgetting that the precedent for that decision was set by one Jeremy Corbyn. It was when Jeremy Corbyn was leader that Chris Williamson was suspended from the Labour Party and stripped of the whip, not for actually some one of his many other uh, uh, statements, but for a statement where he specifically said the problem is not as great. We'd have no reason to apologise, he said, because it's not that big a, big a deal. And so if if I think if it if does get to court, I mean, I defer to Adam and lawyers, but it seems to me that's quite a good precedent that you can indeed be suspended from Labour for minimising a problem like this. After all, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn's NEC, suspended Chris Williamson. Ruth, I was watching all of the news on the day and you were, you know, straight up there as soon as the report was released, giving your thoughts. And then suddenly Jeremy Corbyn's statement dropped. And then all the questions were, Ruth, do you think Jeremy should be in the party? You know, obviously, you're kind of, you know, caught in the headlights there because everyone's been preparing to talk about this report and, and, and you know, the vindication that, that so many people in the Jewish labor movement must have felt when that report finally came through. 
only to then, you know, within 35 minutes, as Jonathan points out, uh, for Jeremy Corbyn to try and r regain the narrative uh, there. What was your take on the events of the day and your kind of philosophical perspective on, on Jeremy Corbyn's uh, suspension in the wake of those uh, comments? I think I found Thursday was a really, really difficult day. I think, you know, the emotional toil uh, and trauma of five years and then to be, you know, and we had been accused, there is nothing I don't think I have not been accused of by the left of the Labour Party and, you know, my damage that I am apparently responsible for. And it was always us that were responsible for it, never the perpetrators of anti-Semitism or the people who were belittling it. So on Thursday, and we weren't allowed to see the report until 10 o'clock, so I hadn't seen it either. Our lawyers were sitting next door in the rooms for us next door. They were reading it. We sort of assumed that they would give us a nod if we were in, if it was not what we thought it was going to be. But we knew nothing. So when the headline came through, I burst into tears and I was not expecting it at all. But it was such an emotional vindication that I hadn't, I knew I hadn't been lying. I knew what my lived experience was. But for someone else to say that and to make it clear, that was just overwhelming. And you know, Margaret Hodge and I together sobbing after five years of misery was just, you know, will live with me forever. And I can't tell you how angry I was when Corbyn's statement came through. The first statement, never mind Joe Pike, I found myself, and for those people who have been following this very closely, you'll appreciate this is this would be very entertaining for me because Margaret Hodge was being the reasonable, responsible, let's not talk about Corbyn, he's the past, we don't need to comment on him being thrown out the late party. And I'm there going, but how dare he? I want him out. This is outrageous. This is disgusting. And we had completely flipped emotionally because she had, you know, there have been moments where Margaret, very much on record, had been <laughs> the um, quite public face of how angry we were. And I was trying to be the, uh, you know, I'm not going to comment on whether Jeremy Corbyn's an anti-Semite. But it was just, everything flipped. And it was part of that emotional response, but it was, as Jonathan said, we were given 35 minutes. We were literally given 35 minutes to say, hi, yeah, remember us, we got death threats. You know, that we, that, that we had been, our lives had been put at risk. And that is not me overstating it because of Jeremy Corbyn's failure of leadership. He gave us 35 minutes to talk about that. And I found myself, so I was doing some media um, before and after Keir had did, did his statement. And I was asked in, I think, seven different ways about Jeremy Corbyn's role within five minutes. And it's like, this is not about him. This was never meant to be about him today. This is about Jewish Labour Party members and what we've experienced and how it became normal. I mean, one of the things that I think that just, it became so normal that you need to remind yourself how disgusting it was. Luciana Berger, pregnant, having to have a police guard at Labour Party conference. I mean, in the city she represented. She couldn't, she wasn't safe in a Labour environment in the city she represented. The police had to be with her. Well, on top of Jer Jeremy Corbyn furiously denying that anyone was under threat on Jon Snow's uh, in the Jon Snow's interview on Channel 4 News, you know, it was like we witnessed her with a police escort and then he's 
Jon Snow is showing him a photo of Luciana with a police escort and he's just denying it. He's denying just the ability to just deny things. He's standing there with a photo of him holding a wreath over Salah Khalaf's grave and he's denying that he did it. And it's even though he wrote about it in the Morning Star, it's just sort of astonishing to me how someone can deny the objective truth every single time with very little sort of... uh, well, I mean, I suppose we've seen it with Trump, or Johnson in, in, in cases, you know, this is this maybe is the new normal. I mean, how do you res- respond to that as a Jewish woman, you know, who, who had to suffer all of this? And that's exactly the point. I mean, that was, it didn't matter what we say. I don't know how many insane conspiracy theories there are about Luciana happening, happening to walk in, uh, walk behind a police officer in Liverpool. And it was all a staged photo. And he wasn't a real police officer. And yet, and that was 2018, 2016. I mean, you know, it's, but I had to have special branch with me at Labour Party conference in 2016 because of death threats from within the Labour Party. And so it, it was no, it was real. I mean, it's just sort of the it was real. And in, that was 2016. This never ha- I think the thing that is so frustrating about last week and the thing that has been so intellectually frustrating over the last five years is none of it was inevitable. None of it had to happen. Even Corbyn's suspension never had to happen. He's done this to himself, but at any point for five years, if they'd have listened, if they'd have listened to people who were saying that they were being victimized and acted, we would never have ended up with the pain that we've ended up with and with the most shameful day in the history of the Labour Party when we've been found to be racist. I mean, fundamentally, that's what we were found on Thursday. The Labour Party has racially discriminated against its members. Full stop, the end, we are a racist endeavour. So it now needs fixed. So on that basis, off we go. That was the end of part one. But before we jump into part two, a quick word from our lovely sponsors at Lath & Co Wealth Advisors. The London-based firm are specialists in retirement, savings, investments, insurance and mortgages, and were recently voted in the top 2% of financial advisors in the UK. And take it from me, they're a nimble firm with real, down-to-earth people who always put their clients first. Lath & Co are offering a free introductory video call to all listeners of Corbynism the Postmortem. So why not head on over at lathandco.co.uk to book an appointment now. You can also find the link to their website in the description link of this podcast. And now, on with part two. So Adam, I've got a question to ask you briefly about your thoughts on the suspension of Jeremy Corbyn, but then I want to go into some of the let's say the legal arguments, I'm using the word legal there in inverted uh, commas, um, against the EHRC report. But, but let's, let's carry on with Corbyn right this second um, and, and draw a line under that. What do you think of Corbyn's suspension? I, I totally agree with what's been said, I, I, but I, I would change the emphasis slightly um, on one issue, which is that I think that ultimately what Jeremy Corbyn helpfully reminded people of was that this was about him and it was about his team. Um, and the commission was, 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 I think that one weakness in the report is it didn't, it didn't make that clear. Um, but it's, you don't have to really read between the lines. I mean, there's an entire chapter about leadership and a failure of leadership. Um, if I were to guess, I would think that they, dis- they probably decided it just wasn't worth 
Um, it just wasn't, they just didn't want to go there because Starmer had come in and that was kind of the end of that. And what it was more important was focusing on procedures and culture. But ultimately, where did this culture come from? It came from the top. Um, it was always about the, the Jonathan talks about the signals. It was always about the signals given by Jeremy Corbyn. I spoke about this in the last podcast. Every time he gave an interview, he gave the very clear signal that this was all made up. It was all exaggerated. It wasn't true. Um, and and what the report does is it is it exposes that as a grotesque conspiracy theory, which which itself is harassing, unlawfully harassing of Jewish people. That's that's what it is. That that's that, that's the key to this entire story is that it, there were anti-Semites. And by saying that Jews are making this up, more anti-Semitism was created because ultimately anti-Semitism relies on a conspiracy theory that Jews are are bad faith actors who have their own agenda, who are trying to take over the world or, you know, um, force through some sort of extreme capitalism or protect their own money, you know, um, the, the, the gold, the gold, the piece of Anderson's gold, you know, all that kind of stuff. So so I think that ultimately the, the, the choice for the Labour Party here is, is has been made clear, but it should have been clear anyway that the the inevitable findings of the, the the inevitable result of this report is that you cannot have people within the labor party especially labor party officials um such as members of parliament labor party members of parliament who say things like um one anti-Semite is too many, but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the Labour Party, as well as by much of the media. You can't have anyone saying that, let alone the person who, on whom responsibility this entire episode falls. Um, and and for the if the Labour Party continues um, to, if the Labour Party gives him back the whip, then all it will show is that that now it's it will be sending the signal, which is that that narrative is appropriate. It's fair, you know. If you look at a survey that was created by um, somebody who was writing a book about how dreadful all this was um, for the Labour Party, then then actually there's some truth in that. You know that narrative has got to be put to bed. It's it's over. That the commission has made that very. It couldn't be clearer that that, that narrative is not only false but unlawful. Um, so I do think that there isn't there isn't a leg to stand. I don't think there's a leg to stand on for Corbyn. I don't think there's a leg to stand on for Jewish Voice for Labour. I don't think there's a leg to stand on for any of the the outrider support who who've presented this narrative. The narrative has to has to die. You know, it, it's it's over. So I do think that's the um, it, it should be a straightforward decision, um, as Stephen said, that that narrative brings the party into disrepute and will put them in legal peril as well. So I've got some uh, some questions to jump off the back of that uh, book that you brought up. So Jeremy Corbyn cited the figure that thirty that thirty four percent of uh, the public thought that uh, you know half the, the third of the Labour members had been uh, disciplined for anti-Semitism, and instead the real figure is 03 percent. Taking away from the fact that if Labour has five hundred thousand members, 03 percent of Labour members being disciplined for anti-Semitism would be you know, 1,500 people or something along those lines. So that's that's quite a lot of people dis disciplined for anti-Semitism, if that's the true figure, uh, which we don't know that it is. It's just come from this book, Bad News for Labour, written by 
Justin Schlossberg, who is one of the campaigners for Chris Williamson. Uh, uh, David Miller, who is a war crimes denier who believes that Assad didn't gas anyone. He has also been kicked out of the party over antecedents, or I don't know whether he resigned beforehand saying that it was a party of Zionism. You know, these are the people that wrote this book, Bad News for Labour, that was then protested when they tried to launch it at, uh, at um, Waterstones uh, during the Labour conference. You know, this was a controversial book written by controversial figures with some really quite... I'll, I'll openly say disgusting views, especially when it comes to war crimes in Syria. This was the book that Jeremy Corbyn himself quoted, this figure, this Servation poll taken by Greg Philo. Uh, his, uh, his former um, staffer, James Schneider, spokesperson, he quoted the same figure. Barnaby Rain on Newsnight, he quoted the same figure. You know, it seems a lot of these figures, are, a, lot, a lot of the, the responses are sort of cut and paste. You know, they don't have very much, so they're now they're relying on this book written by some really quite hardcore denialists uh, to support their claim. I also listened to a lot of the other coverage. You know, I, I sat and watched the two-hour Novara show, so other people don't. And I want to put to you some of the absolute nonsense that was being said by some of these people uh, on their show about the legal case, right? For one thing, uh, it was said repeatedly on Novara that Labour was only guilty of harassment because of two tweets, Um it wasn't two tweets. It was two people that were found guilty of harassment, one of them being Ken Livingston, one of Jeremy Corbyn's you know, closest allies and over many, many years in Parliament. Um, you know, that was just the harassment side of the case. That wasn't the political interference side of the case. You know, it's like reading the first line of the report and then stopping there. Oh, only two people have been found guilty of harassment. Now, the report is 130 pages long, guys. It keeps going. The other part that they talk about is the interference. They repeatedly state that the interference from Jeremy Corbyn's office was only to expedite cases. They repeatedly state that, that, oh, well, the EHRC have ruled that political interference is bad and we can accept that, but, you know, they, they were only interfering to get Ken Livingston's case sped up. That's not really what the report says, is it? The third point, and this is the most ludicrous, and this came from Alex Nunn's, Jeremy Corbyn's former speechwriter, and shared by Aaron and other Novara media people, that actually what the EHRC report says is that uh, any kind of involvement from the leader's office to suspend someone for anti-Semitism, such as Keir Starmer has done with Jeremy Corbyn, is itself unlawful discrimination against Jewish people. A fundamental misreading of what the, uh, of what the, the actual text says. So if you could address those three arguments, one about it only being two tweets... The second uh, being that political interference from Jeremy Corbyn's office was only to, you know, speed cases up. He was only trying to make things better, like Tom Watson was asking him to. And the third being that Jeremy Corbyn's suspension uh, for um, bringing the party into disrepute is itself, according to the EHRC, a form of unlawful discrimination against Jewish people. I'm, I'm, I'm going to actually deal with this pretty shortly um, because th these... You know, this is this kind of infuriating, um, illogical, unfactual analysis um, as, as just a feature of this entire issue. We've seen it, you know, these kind of I think of it as like the bullet, the Twitter bullet point kind of approach, you know, and it's just it's it's the, the framing of it. it. It's all about framing. It's all about trying to. Um, trying to focus in on tiny little points that aren't aren't relevant they aren't true but it bogs everybody down i want to just just 
come come back out here this that the, i've read out the the bits of the report from the introduction which say that the the leadership was responsible for unlawful harassment and discrimination in policies and procedures and culture those are wide findings they're not narrow findings they don't relate that they, they looked at examples that was their entire um, pr- approach was they looked at 70 examples um, and they picked out the, the worst bits from each from from those examples that they could find but they said the words they used was that was the tip of the iceberg the tip of the iceberg was the word they use it twice in the report because they you know if you read this report with your eyes open, you see that this was a terrible, terrible problem. And if you go back to the McPherson report into um, the, the 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 death of Stephen Lawrence, and you and and I read it, you know, over and over again during this period, the a lot of the Met, a number of the senior Met police. So this is when the and um, the Met police were found to be institutionally racist because of what happened over Stephen Lawrence. Why why were the complaints not? Of the of the black community not properly dealt with because they were institutionally racist and the and it's interesting because some of the of the arguments made are the same. There is um the senior a, a senior Met commissioner stands up and says in evidence it was a terrible thing that happened but it was a few bad apples, and the report completely um you know completely rejects that and said this this wasn't a few bad apples it was about culture and it was the culture that allowed those ba- th- those those attitudes and and approaches and procedures to develop and if somebody if a, if a senior if the pre- previous leader of the met had stood up after the stephen lawrence inquiry and said and said well one racist in the force is too many but the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside of the met as well as by much of the media and that combination hurt black people and must never be repeated that person would have been sacked immediately because the met knew that it was banged to rights and there's absolutely no there's there's no possible justification. You can't just say, "Look, I've got one survey." Which I mean, that's he didn't even mention people's attitudes in his initial statement. That was an ex post facto justification. He says the scale of the problem was also dramatically overstated for political reasons by our opponents inside and outside the party, as well as by much of the media. He doesn't talk about how people felt about it. He talks about it was exaggerated. So. I just think you know. I, I'm I'm sorry. It, it kind of it infuriates me slightly to listen to the to the stuff that that gets you know even now um gets stated. But the it's 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 now in the Labour Party's hands. They need to put this put these attitudes and approaches um to bed. They need to consign them to history because otherwise they'll never be able to move on. So let's just draw a line on this. Legally speaking, you are saying that the Labour Party are not unlawfully discriminating against Jewish people by suspending Jeremy Corbyn for denying the scope and scale of the unlawful discrimination against Jewish people. No, against no, his no, no. The, the point they're making is um, the, the commission found that, that there was a policy of the leadership interfering in anti-Semitism complaints. And they found that was discriminatory because it, 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 it treated Jews differently than other people and it couldn't be justified that's indirect discrimination it's a policy which treats people differently which which can't be justified and what they're saying in their sort of you know um, clever little way is well if Keir Starmer was involved in this decision then ah that's anti-semitic um now it, it, <laughs> there's I, I'm probably better off referring this to, to, to Ruth it's obviously not 
anti-Semitic, it might be procedurally wrong. And Jeremy Corbyn might have a case if Keir Starmer actually wrote that letter and sent it off himself and then pretended that it came from the governance legal unit. Then, you know, like Chris Williamson had a case when he was procedurally dealt with um, in the wrong way, Jeremy Corbyn might have a case. But that doesn't mean that he's not brought the party into disrepute. It's just he he might have a procedural case. I don't know. I mean, I can't. I mean, it's it's not anti-Semitic. That's balmy. Um, but it might be procedurally wrong. I don't. I mean, I have no no view on that because I don't know exactly how it all went down. I'm, I, I was going to go to I was going to go to Stephen, but I'm going to go to Ruth over here because she was waving her hands about that. So, what, what's your take on that, Ruth? Oh, I hit that these people are disgusting and they need to get a grip and look at the real world. But let's be clear, fundamentally, which is why this has been a problem all the way through. The Labour Party is a private members' club, and who it lets in and how it lets people in is quite clear and it's up to them to decide who its membership is which is why we have this problem in the first place because they didn't have to let these anti-Semites stay in the Labour Party. Um, I can't believe for a second that Keir Starmer in the middle of a press conference wrote a letter to Jeremy Corbyn. I think that would be a really impressive thing for him to have done. Well he spent the whole conference saying that Jeremy Corbyn wasn't going to get suspended repeatedly. I mean he just sort of like shooting himself in the foot over and over again. Um, Absolutely and I saw that it went to Jeremy Corbyn's old email address. Well, that suggests that no one has updated his details on the Labour Party system. That's not um, David Evans's fault. Um, but in terms of procedure, obviously, as we have watched some people being thrown out, other people, you know, Margaret Hodge being threatened with expulsion because she dared to call Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite, quite clear on the rules, brought the Labour Party into disrepute. There now follows a full process um, and it will be the current process, not the other one, uh, not whatever new process comes to foot. And it will be a decision for the new NEC, whether it goes to the NCC panel. Now, the new NEC doesn't meet again, doesn't meet until the middle of November, towards the end of the month. It will be for them to determine what happens next. But I think we can probably all agree, or at least the people on this call, Jeremy Corbyn may have brought the Labour Party into disrepute on Thursday. I mean... I think that's probably a given, Um, but it is not for me to comment on due process. That is now due process has to be followed, but it was not anti-Semitic what he's being done for. It's bringing the Labour Party into disrepute. Um, I'm going to go over to Stephen now. Um, Off the back of that, you know, obviously I think we're all in agreement that Jeremy Corbyn's comments, you know, undermined the EHRC's findings and brought the Labour Party into disrepute by that broad definition of disrepute. But politically speaking, Stephen, how do you think the Corbyn suspension is going to play out over the next few months? And also, I'm quite interested in your take on the Socialist Campaign Group and Corbyn's allies. Um, There's been kind of a muted response, both from parliamentarians and from from even people at Novara and so on, who, who have not, you know, resorted to denialism and have sort of you know, at least looked at the EHRC report and thought this is a very serious document that finds very serious failings. So I'm just wondering, you know, the left has a huge stake in Jeremy Corbyn, but is that a miscalculation? Is that a miscalculation for them now? Or do you think that, you know, it, it's probably going to be resolved in some way at a time when it's more politically convenient? No, look, in, in a real sense, Labour's civil war has been going since 1907, when in the first Labour Party conference after the party uh, 
uh, the party first elected any MPs, they had a row about the extent to which the conference floor could bind those MPs. And the kind of the superstructure, as to use a slightly full phrase, uh, of, of Labour's internal argument has been going since then. That continues under Keir Starmer and will continue uh, essentially, you know, until we are we are all uh, dead and gone. Um, does the Corbyn suspension reignite that in a significant way? No, it doesn't, to be honest, change the contours of the debate within the socialist campaign group, which is broadly, you know, is Keir Starmer sincere about wanting to use the 2017 election as a foundation to run the party from its centre with both wings, or is he a creature of the Labour right? And essentially... That is the yeah. That is still an ongoing political debate within the campaign group, within the top of the more Corbynite trade unions, and that hasn't really changed. Um, I would say actually, look the 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 next kind of genuinely um, proximate event in terms of this this aspect of Labour's uh, internal conflict, which is yeah how it tackles anti-Semitism in its ranks, which does not actually map wholly cleanly onto its left-right fissure. But, so Ruth has very helpfully and clearly set out what the, the rule, rule book situation is. But let's say, and it's, it's possible, right, then, 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 you know, the relevant NEC subcommittee and the NCC goes, nope, you don't have a case to answer. You know, factionalism is going to factional, factionalism. Uh, political expediency is going to politically expediency as well, right? So it's possible that this process does go, uh, nope, actually, you don't have a case to answer. But look, does anyone honestly believe then there isn't going to be another complaint against him then there isn't going to be what there's going to be no behavior over the next five years that doesn't um give people grounds for a complaint yeah there's not going to be you know something akin to defending the mural or something like the wreath or he's not going to um you know do an event with someone who's been um kicked out over this issue before i mean does that seem particularly likely to anyone and you know i think like this is this is the kind of the big political um row in labor is and it, i just think it is hard to see how if the independent process takes a similar steer to the labor party's existing rule book then we don't see quite a lot of expulsions from the labor party which now obviously you can go well if someone's out of the party then that there's no longer an internal war, but it moves the theatre of the internal war, right? Like, you know, the Change UK split split away was was another was another theatre in Labour's internal war, right? Now it was an internal theatre which temporarily boosted the Liberal Democrats, you know, got them a lot of councillors, helped to them do very, very well in the Euros. Obviously, the councillors were a more lingering asset for the Liberal Democrats than the MEPs turned out to be, um, but. Yeah, like, I think, yeah, we, it's very easy to see how this is a step on the road to a split party from Labour's left, which, yeah, moves all of those conflicts to outside the party rather than inside it. But, yeah, they still go on. But that hasn't really changed all that much. The proximate event still, in terms of Labour's civil war's latest re-eruption, was Keir Starmer uh, sacking Becky Long-Bailey. And in many ways, everything that's happened since then, including this week, uh, is purely uh, Keir Starmer making his actions continue to, to match his words. Um, Jonathan, I'm going to leave you with the last words. Um, you know, if we could go back to uh, the first episode again and, and, and your thoughts. You know, obviously the utterly sub- 
disgusting subliminal nastiness thing keeps playing in my mind. You were one of the first journalists um, in the mainstream to highlight the problem with uh, the anti-Semitism coming into Corbyn's party um, and to point to Corbyn and say that he was to bear a responsibility for it. You didn't even say he was an anti-Semite or anything like that, but you said he bore responsibility as a leader for this. And the response to you was a direct attack um, and it has been the same ever since, really. You know, there, the moment that you should have been vindicated on Thursday, um, instead of vindication, you got the exact same spiel that was read to you, you know, it, you, that you saw in that Vice documentary. So, you know, final thoughts, because I think the thing about Corbynism, the post-mortem now, is what's clear to me is that Corbyn's political career uh, is over. You know, whether or not he remains as MP for Islington North as an independent or even as a diminished Labour MP, the the whole Corbynite, Corbynist thing has been destroyed by this EHRC report. Any kind of semblance that there might have been, uh, you know, a truth to the idea that, that, that it was all smears and it was all lies was fundamental to keeping this movement, which was based on morality and moral decisions and, you know, always being on the right side of history. That has been destroyed by this legal statutory document that proves otherwise. So, yeah, your thoughts on on Corbynism in general. You know, where how did we end up here, and 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 how do we how do we draw a line under it? What what would the history books say? I think before being as confident as as you just were in declaring this thing dead, and it you know we're having a post mortem. It should be in a way by the terms of this podcast. Before we can be fully confident of that, I think the view that you've articulated, and Stephen and Ruth has to be articulated at some level by the Corbynites themselves. And I'm not sure they're there yet. And that's why I said before I felt disappointed in a way by the reaction, because in some naive way, I thought they would themselves be chastened by the report. And yet from the man at the top and, and, there, and then thereafter, his outriders, there was no such introspection or uh, recognition of responsibility. Um, in a way, we shouldn't be surprised by that because they never take responsibility. And you go back to December the 12th, 2019, the election night, that would have been a moment for them to say, look, we obviously put up someone who every single opinion poll said was going to be utterly emphatically rejected by the electorate. And that we were wrong. We shouldn't have done it. And it's on us, they should have said that Boris Johnson is now Prime Minister and that we're going to get a hard Brexit because we put up somebody who was repellent to the voters. But you never hear that. Instead, they'll say, it's on Ruth Smith and it's on me and it's on Adam Wagner, it's on you, Oz, because we were daring to point out that the emperor had no clothes and therefore... Well, I mean, at this point, I wear that as a badge of pride because uh, the guy's just been found guilty of unlawful discrimination, you know, and, and as far as I'm concerned, I was on the right side of history when in 2015 I was pointing out that this guy had some really unsavoury connections and views yeah. that were not being explored. That's right. But So you're right, but the, the trouble is we need them and some of them, and maybe they are, maybe the ones who are less noisy are beginning to think that. Uh, and to reflect that. And I suppose the fact that quite a lot of people who'd, who'd voted for Gorbyn in 2015 and 2016 voted for Keir Starmer to be leader does suggest there was some recognition there that that project had failed uh, and they needed to do something else. But you mentioned the, the you know, the remark on the Vice documentary uh, in response to the thing I'd written that day when Jeremy Corbyn said it was utterly disgusting, subliminal nastiness. 
the thing that's always worth going back to with that piece and you know very kind of you to point out that it was one of the early soundings of the alarm there were others you know you and james bloodworth and me actually in the jewish chronicle were doing it in 2015 as well but that that was sort of in a more mainstream platform it's worth going back to what was going on in that piece because in a way it was first of all as i said on the first of these podcasts it was very mild it was really sort of tentative if anything but also the key part of it was and this goes for i think margaret hodge and ruth smith and luciana berger and all the others it was a warning it wasn't a scolding and a sort of resignation at it was saying here's a problem it definitely can be dealt with but if it isn't it's going to get worse and therefore, and it was overly respectful. I can criticise that piece now. It was far too nice to Jeremy Corbyn and the others. Very tentative, very politely. It said, look, there's this thing going on. Not your fault. It's there on the fringes. But do you do need to deal with it because if you don't, it's going to become a big problem. That what was that was, first of all, that was what was precinct about, uh, about that piece because, it, yeah, you know, it did become a big problem. But also it was something that so could have been dealt with instead though the response was that ferocious sort of quite vicious tirade to say how dare you say such a thing and we didn't realize how revealing that was of the mindset which was even a quite modest and supportive from within the tent warning was uh, repudiated as if it was an attack and that goes to what he the response that we saw last week because denial has always been the reaction to this problem and as adam and i think others brought out denial in this particular case in the context of anti-semitism is part of the prejudice because what does it mean to say that this has been exaggerated it's saying jews are liars they are disseminators of poison they're smear artists they're con artists and they secretly have some other kind of agenda it's not the same as denying something else about you know about a view of lockdown or whatever if you're talking about Jews making up anti-Semitism, that is itself an anti-Semitic charge because it says these people aren't to be trusted and will do anything to advance their own agenda. So when he says that, that is more than just being sort of, you know, putting his fingers in his ears about a legal judgment. It is part of the problem, which is why I think Stephen uh, and Adam will write, say it's an open and shut case. Last couple of things I would just say. Um, the talking points that are coming out from Corbyn's defenders, oh, it's only two cases, they say. The report, as Adam said, is so clear, tip of the iceberg. Uh, but also, that's not because they w- there was not much anti-Semitism. It's because they had this very, biz- to outsiders, bizarre legal standard that the person accused had to be acting as an agent of the Labour Party. It's a very legal formulation. They can't have just been a Labour Party member or councillor sounding off. In the moment they were saying something, they must have been acting in such a way that the Labour Party was responsible for their actions. That's why they say those 18 cases are borderline, whether they meet that legal threshold. That they were anti-Semitic, 18 out of 70, there's no doubt in their minds. So that that needs to be said. This is a tip of the iceberg. And the uh, you know to pursue that point, I contacted the uh, an executive director of the EHRC on Friday, Alistair Pringle, who told me he had seen hundreds of cases and of anti-Semitism that was, his words, atrocious. And he said that he and his fellow commissioners were, his words, shocked by what they saw. And when I didn't have time to quote this and they didn't have room in the Guardian column, I wrote, he said just the way Jewish people were described was so shocking to him. This is a man, you know, who is not a novice, right, in the field of equalities. He's at the top of the main equalities body in this country. He was shocked and so were his fellow 
commissioners by the, his words, atrocious anti-Semitism he saw coming from members of a supposedly anti-racist party. It is so damning, this judgment. One of those rare cases where the media reports, if anything, soft soap, how damning the report itself is. It is such a day of shame for the Labour Party. The question to me only now uh, is, is, it, is Jeremy Corbyn now surrounded by a small, noisy, but small group of defenders now, and the, the majority of the party has understood what happened and moved on? Or is there still a movement there that is going to drag Labour back and, 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 by doing, and in so doing damage Labour and damage Labour's chances of ever reaching government? I don't know whether we can know the answer to that yet. But after the post-mortem, the question of whether this there is some revival uh, or you know return to life of this movement, that is the question that preys on my mind. Ruth, I'd actually like to end on you and just give you a chance to, to sum up your thoughts and to give us the final word on Corbynism, the post-mortem. Maybe you have some positive thoughts, maybe not, I don't know. But seeing as you were one of the people who suffered the most under this, it would be great to hear your perspective on, you know, what what lies in store for the future? I think there's just a couple of things I want to say. First of all, to the people who are listening, a lot of them would have been allies during this fight. And it's easy for those allies to have been written out of history. But there were people who, um, including you all, but there were people who fought the good fight with us, whose also their voices need to be heard because they were ridiculed and diminished and attacked for being allies against racism. And I will be forever in your debt for standing with us. Um, in terms of what happens next, I, I hope, I'm looking forward to October 29, um, 29th, 2021, be a year on from the EHRC report. I think the Labour Party, please God, will be far ahead in the polls, but we will have a different type of culture and Labour Party. A Labour Party where Jewish women, and it was overwhelmingly Jewish women, but Jewish women um, are safe and secure to go to Labour Party meetings again when that happens. And one of the things that I think comes, the most positive thing that comes from this is what happens next, actually, not to the, not to the Labour Party, but to the Jewish Labour movement, who had to fight the fight within. Um, I think that our role going forward is almost as the conscience of the Labour Party, to be there to say, oh my God, you're, like, have you seen what you're doing to the black community, to the Hindu community, to the Sikh community? Have you seen you're going down the same path again? Ours is to be almost the front line of solidarity with other communities to say, what on earth do you think you're doing? So that this never, ever, ever happens again to someone else. I think that's the fundamental part of this. I'm just, I mean, the bit that I find extraordinary is how quickly this became normal within the Labour Party. And I, you know, our role now is as a community, but as Jewish Labour members, we are now the front line of anti-racism in the Labour Party. That has to be our role going forward. We stand in solidarity with others to say, this isn't the Labour Party. And so that I take as a really good thing. JLM is never going to be a normal, boring socialist society ever again, as much as it would maybe would want to at certain points. That isn't our role now. Our role is to work with the leadership to fix it but then to make sure it never, ever, ever happens again. But I want to say thank you to everybody because this was definitely a team effort to have got the Labour Party on the on a, in a better place. Thanks everyone so much for coming onto the show several times. It's been a pleasure to have you all here and thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much, guys.
That was the end of this episode of Corbynism the Postmortem. But before I go, I wanted to end the show with some of my thoughts. Looking back on when I started this podcast at the end of 2019, it feels like a totally different world. In Britain, coronavirus, Brexit and a growing economic crisis has started to have a lasting impact on the image of Boris Johnson's government. In America, Joe Biden has just defeated the hard-right populist Donald Trump to become America's 46th president, closing the door on one of the darkest chapters for contemporary Western liberal democracy. The pace of the world is changing so rapidly that barely a week after Jeremy Corbyn's suspension from the Labour Party, his name is no longer splashed across the British tabloid press. It is for that reason, and those that I outlined earlier, that this will be the last episode of this podcast series. I hope the words of the guests I have had on this show over the last few months will stand as a testimony to what happened during Corbyn's leadership, and that they serve as a warning for future progressive political movements, so that these mistakes are never repeated again. Corbynism was a political coalition built on contradictions and fundamentally irreconcilable political positions. It was a movement for the future that could never get its head out of the past. It was an ideology built on top of a fabricated concept of moral righteousness that collapsed under the slightest of scrutiny. A party that could not effectively deal with disciplining Holocaust deniers in its own ranks was never going to be trusted by the electorate to deal with Brexit or the nationalisation of vital public utilities. At a time of crisis, when the British electorate looked to their leaders for guidance, such as in the aftermath of a chemical weapons atrocity committed by a hostile state actor on British soil, in Corbyn they found only prevarication, equivocation and spin. After listening to the testimony of so many of those Labour voices who were there to witness it all, I can only conclude that Corbynism did not fail because it was a progressive movement that faced insurmountable odds in the face of rising British conservatism. It failed because the movement never came close to actually representing the progressive, social democratic, internationalist ideals it claimed to hold dear. That is the note I wish to end the series on. Looking forward to the next decade, with the hopefully not too naive belief that a better, kinder, gentler world really is possible for the many not the few devoid of the bigotry and denial that toxified the british left over the last few years maybe this time things might actually get better thank you for listening to corbynism the postmortem i'd like to thank my guests stephen bush ruth smith adam wagner and jonathan friedland and if you've enjoyed the series please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash ozcategy. I look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thanks again for listening to Corbynism the Postmortem. And we'd just like to leave you with a final word from our sponsors. Like many of you, the COVID pandemic has affected personal finances which is why I'm so thankful for Lath & Co Wealth Advisors, recently voted in the top 2% of financial advisors in the UK for their support throughout this crisis. Specialising in retirement, savings, investments, insurance and mortgages, Lath & Co offer a bespoke and truly independent service tailored to you. Head on over to lathandco.co.uk now to book a free introductory video call to discuss financial planning and find out just how Lath & Co Wealth Advisors can help you today. Lath & Co, simple and attainable financial planning for everyone.